I want to begin next week a series of lessons on salvation. Now, looking around the audience, uh, I recognize that most everybody in the room, you know, we, we, we've probably covered that subject frontwards, backwards, upside down, otherwise. But I want to cover it, I hope, in, a, in somewhat of a unique fashion. Um, we are going to cover the basics, and we'll talk about that. And so I'd like to encourage you over the, the next uh, several Sundays, if you have a loved one, an individual who needs to look at that subject matter, to try to encourage them to be with us on Sunday mornings. But uh, I'm going to really look at it from a four... The, the series is going to be divided into four parts. The first part is, why do we need to be saved? You'd be surprised at the number of people who don't even understand that. Uh, or, or see a, a real need. Why do we need to be saved? Where do we go to get salvation? And in that particular part of the series, we're going to look specifically at being in Christ Jesus and why that's significant and how do you get there. The denominational world tends to focus on a lot of things, but they don't talk a lot about getting inside Christ. How does that happen? So I want to look at, I wrote them here in my hand, uh, why do we need salvation? Where do we go and how do we keep it? That might very well be the most significant part to our fellowship because I can't tell you the number of people I have found within the restoration movement who do not have a confidence of their own salvation. They're not sure how to arrive at that. First John 5 and 13 tells us that we can know that we have salvation, that we are saved. And yet most of the folks, many of the folks that I cross paths with, they, they don't know. In fact, I had an elder who I treasure. He's now with the Lord, but I, I treasured my relationship with him. But at one point he said to me, he said, Sonny, I hope I go to heaven, but if I get through the pearly gates, it'll be by the skin of my teeth. That's just not a mature view of Christianity. And I was disappointed in this elder for expressing it in such a way as that. Then the fourth segment of our series together is going to be, when, when will this salvation culminate? The grand announcement, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When will that take place? And so those will be the four parts of this series. And again, if you have family members who are in need of that subject matter, encourage them to come and be with us. Today, however, I want to look at a subject matter that, again, it sounds so basic, but it is something that I think that we as the church need to not only examine, but we need to be better at showing the world what is happening with regards to this subject matter. I want to talk about truth. I've got a problem with my coat here and it keeps hitting up against this thing and making a noise and bothering me. I want to talk about truth, basic truth. What is truth? You might recall that uh, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Pilate rather dismissively says to Jesus after Jesus spoke about truth, he said, well, what, what is truth? That's kind of the attitude that most folks have in the world today, at least the ones that I cross paths with, whenever they're cornered with something that causes them to need to change their life. Uh, don't judge me is kind of a byproduct of this idea that what is truth? Truth is relative. It kind of depends on, you know, the circumstances of the situation. In fact, many of our colleges today, universities today, are often teaching from that perspective that there is no real absolute truth. It's just kind of relative to the situation that you're in. So what is truth exactly? Now, obviously, I, I could take you to other places in Scripture that talks about thy word is truth. And uh, certainly that is true. 
And so the John chapter 1, verse 1 passage comes to mind. That in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. Well, if thy Word is truth, then truth was in the beginning. Truth is Jesus. Truth is the expression of God. God is all things true. He is nothing false. And so we could go that direction. But I'd like to turn to a passage you might not have thought of with regards to this subject matter. Uh, my favorite prophet, other than Jesus, is Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 5, he deals with this subject matter of truth in such a way that you would say he's describing today's culture. And so I want to take our lesson this morning from Jeremiah chapter 5. We're only going to see the first three verses. But in those three verses, he provides three points with regards to truth. And a truth that's not just significant to his day and age, but maybe more so to our day and age. Because unlike Jeremiah, we're not looking forward to the cross. We're looking back upon the cross. We've got the entire picture behind us. We see what God was, was putting forth. The, the mystery is no longer a mystery. We, we see that the Christ would come, that God himself would die on the cross for you and I to, to purchase our, our, our salvation. And so we understand truth from a standpoint of, of a greater picture. We, we see more of the picture than Jeremiah did. But certainly what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 5 is true to his time and certainly true to ours as well. I'm actually going to run this passage backwards because as is so often the case with scripture, especially in the Old Testament, they will draw to a conclusion. And that conclusion is something I want to start with. And then I want to go back and show you the evidence. And so we're actually going to start in verse three and move backwards, but I'm going to read it in its proper order. Uh, Jeremiah chapter five, beginning at verse one, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note, search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth. That I may pardon her. Though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. A Lord, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? Have you struck them down, but they felt no anguish? You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Again, as you see Jeremiah's words here in the first three verses of chapter 5, dealing with truth, justice, he is centering in on Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of God's people. This is where we, we would find the temple. This is where all the great prophets would, would generally center in upon. This is where Jesus will come and his ministry will largely revolve around. Jesus himself will die here in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is the epicenter of religiosity, certainly during the time of Jeremiah. And I think you and I would conclude with regards to Christianity that it's the root of where our faith comes from. Jerusalem is where the, the death, burial, and resurrection takes place, which is the heart of the gospel. And so Jerusalem's pretty huge to our movement, as you can imagine. That being said then, I want you to notice again, working the passage backwards, I want you to see verse 3, and my point is this. Understand the high priority that God places upon truth. He says, verse 3, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? Evidently, God himself is searching for truthful people, honest individuals, those who are secure in that which is accurate. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. 
You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Doesn't that sound like America today? Our own culture today? I mean, how many more warnings does God have to give us with regards to our moral condition? And we refuse to change. We refuse to get out of the rut of degradation that we find ourselves in. God, according to the first part of verse 3, God's looking for truth. It's that which he really desires to see. A heart that is pure. One that is actually looking for accuracy in life. God is looking for that. But then as you read the rest of verse 3, you begin to see just how much they disdain that which God values. He says it, or Jeremiah says of God, you struck them down, but they didn't even feel it. You consumed them, but they didn't take correction. They made their, their faces harder than rock. Stubborn people who just will not change. This past week, I was debating a young lady, a young mother, as a matter of fact, that um, I, I, I hurt for, but... I was debating her on the subject of original sin, which, by the way, we'll deal with in our next series, original sin. This concept that because Adam sinned, you are born with sin in your life. Read Ezekiel chapter 18. It specifically says that's not true. But it is a perverse doctrine that permeates all of those who call themselves Christians today. Almost everyone I, I cross paths with has this concept in the back of their mind that the babies are born tainted by the original sin of Adam. It just simply is not true. We will deal with Romans chapter 5 and what that really is talking about in Romans chapter 5 during the course of our next series. But I was debating this lady with regards to original sin, and I, I asked her, I said, so do you believe that your baby is evil? Now, that doesn't sit well with the young mother, as you can imagine. She immediately bowed up and she said, no, my baby is not evil. And I agreed with her. But she's one who would tout the false doctrine of original sin. And so I pressed her further. And I said, but, but you believe that your baby is born with an evil nature, correct? Yes, my baby is born with an evil nature because of Adam. We're all born under the curse of original sin, so we're all born with an evil nature. And then I asked the question, which, by the way, she cut me off at this point, and we haven't talked since. I asked her the question, how can a person have an evil nature and not be evil? Have you thought about that? If you believe your baby has an evil nature, then you believe your baby is evil. That is the ultimate conclusion of the original sin false doctrine. You do not inherit the, the, the sin of Adam. We are not people tainted in the womb by the sin of Adam. God does not knit us together as evil babies. But my point for using that illustration is coming back to this text. God desires truth. He desires one of the most important qualities of truth is consistency. Truth is not hypocritical. Truth does not draw a conclusion that is in opposition to another conclusion. And yet that's what Calvinism does. Catholicism does the same thing. They want to say that we are evil people, but my baby's not evil. And it makes no sense because they are blinded by Satan. Truth is consistent. It is solid. 
And so let me just say as emphatically as I can, no, your baby is not evil. Your baby was not born evil. Your baby was not born with an evil nature. Your baby was designed in the image of God. When God put your baby together, knitted your child together in the womb, he did a perfect job. And that child is without sin. And so I ask you the trick question. A baby, three days old, are they saved or lost? Now remember, I said it's a trick question. A baby, three days old, are they saved or lost? Answer, neither. To say that they're saved means that they are saved from something, sin, they've never sinned. To say that they're lost is to say that they have sinned and therefore are lost. They've never done that. So what is a baby? A baby is simply of God, innocent of God. That's truth. And yet I have a mother who doesn't want me to call her baby evil while she will say her baby has an evil nature. That's not truth. That's not consistency. So the first point I would offer to you in Jeremiah chapter 5 is that God treasures truth, and we should treasure truth as well. And when Reformation leaders or Catholic leaders or whoever else, your favorite scholar, your favorite Bible school teacher, your favorite religious author, whenever they say something that is in conflict with what God has said, they are not speaking the truth. And we must value God's words over man's words even if we don't fully understand or want to understand what God is saying. Number two, again, moving backwards, verse two, you'll notice that truth is a low priority even to God's people. First of all, notice how much God values truth. Second of all, notice how little God's people value truth. Now, Jeremiah is writing of God's people. He's writing of, Jer of Jerusalem, and he says in verse 2, Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they, as they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. In other words, they're taking the name of the Lord in vain. We often associate taking the name of the Lord in vain by using God's name in connection with a curse word, which is, is true. But vain just simply means empty. It's, it's, it's using the Lord's name in a, an oath, but not really meaning what you're saying. Crossing your fingers behind your back whenever you make the promise. Or you've heard people say, on the grave of my mother, I swear. That kind of thing. And yet you know this individual hasn't been truthful most of their life. And so you know, they're, what they're doing is they're ratcheting it up. They're doing their best to try to find a level where you would trust them. On the grave of my mama. And yet their entire life has not led you to a belief that they really meant that particular vow or whatever it may be. And that's what God's people were doing here in verse 2. They were invoking the name of the Lord, but not living up to the oath. Truth. Truth is solid. Truth can be counted upon. You remember a day when all these fancy contracts that we had to have notarized and whatever... They were, they were almost unnecessary. To many farmers in the area, a handshake was good enough. I've known you and your daddy. I knew your grandpa. You're not going to violate that oath. Because if you do, what a shame it would bring upon your family. And we had real credibility. Now today, what do we got to do? We've got to have a notary. We've got to have some other individual. We've got to go through all kinds of paperwork. And even then, we're not sure whether or not that we can really trust the other person. 
Why is that? Because our word hasn't, doesn't stand as God would have it to stand. Truth is not truth to us anymore. It's kind of like the word love that we throw around. I really do love Rocky Road ice cream. I really do. But if you know me well, you know I don't love Rocky Road ice cream like I love my wife. I'd gladly give up Rocky Road ice cream for the rest of my life to keep my wife. And yet I use love for both situations. Well, truth kind of is the same way. It's just kind of relative to the circumstance. No, it's not. Jesus is truth. Thy word is truth. That means Jesus is truth. Truth is rock solid. And when we don't stand for that which is rock solid, we don't stand for anything worthwhile. Number three, verse one, we also see the result. What happens when God treasures truth, but God's people do not? What happens? Number three, notice verse one. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. In other words, it's got a complete void of truth. It's gone. He says, run through the streets, look everywhere, go into every square, every little crack and cranny, and try to find me somebody that I can, as he says here, that I can pardon. Now, the reason that Jerusalem is mentioned here, and the reason that's so significant, is because, as I said in the opening, that's the epicenter of God's people. And so you go to the place where God's people should be as intensely concentrated as anywhere, and he says, even there, I can't find truth. It's a little off subject, but since we just celebrated not too many weeks ago. You ever been puzzled by the fact that the wise men, the Magi, came from the east? Not from Jerusalem? We had to have foreigners come to the epicenter of God's people to tell God's people, hey, the Christ child is being born. You ever think about that? That's pretty shameful if you think about it. If anybody should have picked up on the fact that the Christ child was on the horizon, it should have been the folks in Jerusalem. <laughs> They're the ones with the PhDs in Bible. They're the ones that have all the fancy scrolls. They're the ones, to use the term again, at the epicenter of religiosity, and yet they had to have foreigners from the east come and tell them the Christ child is here. It evidently wasn't any different in the day of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, you run to and fro throughout the entire city. You look in every dark corner, every spot, and you can't find somebody that I can pardon. Because there ain't no truth in God's people. So if I were to draw this to a, a conclusion, I would say of us. Regardless of what you think about the church down the street, the religious neighbor that you have, whatever, put all that stuff aside for a moment and let's draw it back to just you and me. Us. How well do we represent truth? I'd like to think that when I give my pledge, that people count on it. Sonny said it, it's gonna be done. I'd like to think that that is true. But you know, it's really much, much, much more important than that. 
It's not just that, yeah, I'll mow your yard next week, and then I mow the yard next week. It's, it's so much bigger than that. The question is, do we actually represent Jesus? Not in, yeah, I'll pay my bill, yeah, I'll mow your yard, but do I look like Jesus when I walk down the street? When I pass that person at the supermarket, do they say, that's a Christian, Christ-like individual? Because I represent truth. I exude truth. It comes out every pore in my body. I, I am a truthful person. I'm accurate. I'm on point. I stand where God stands because Jesus is truth. Therefore, if Jesus said it, if Jesus represents it, that's where I'm at. Even if the culture opposes it. Even if people in the church oppose it. I'm going to stand where Jesus stands. Is that us? Obviously, I can't really answer that question for an us. I can only answer it for a me. But you can answer it for a you. What is your relationship to truth? And how does the world view it as far as you are concerned?